most well-known translation, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Okay, so my first question was, how can we number our days? Does that mean we should count the days until we're going to die? Because surely only God knows that. So, um, we're going to have a look at three other translations um, that give us a clue to what the psalmist meant by numbering our days. So, teach us to consider our mortality so that we might live wisely. In other words, mortality, we're all going to die. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Teach us how short our life is so that we may become wise. So each translation talks about some aspect of considering our approaching death so that we might live wisely and become wise. The Amplified Version adds to that idea. So teach us to number our days that we may cultivate and bring to you a heart of wisdom. So we're asking God to teach us to realize how short life is so that we may gain a heart of wisdom and offer it to God. So when I say this particular verse came every day, I'm not exaggerating. Every Bible study I was doing on Version or by daily email, or over the past four weeks gave either this verse to meditate on or talked about the theme of numbering our days and considering our mortality. Now, I suspect some of you may be inwardly moaning, right? Thinking, this sounds really depressing, and I really don't want to think about dying. Um, well, John and I experienced this reaction last year when we invited our six children out for dinner to talk about our end-of-life plans. Our one son refused to come. We're not sure why, but we think it's because he didn't want to deal with the whole issue. Um, two of our children said, oh, we weren't going to die anytime soon, you know, but they came anyway for a free dinner. Um, our son, Daniel, who's right now in the nursery, um, was, was the most realistic and, as usual, made it funny. He called the meeting the death dinner. <laughs> and actually, it turned out to be lots of fun. Okay, but it is normal to fear the unknown, whether it's the jitters two days before school starts, or just before your baby arrives, or when you leave on a trip and you're leaving the known behind and you don't know what's going to happen. Um, so please bear with me, right? The topic of death isn't all tears and agony, right? There can be laughter, and I hope that when we confront our own deaths, that it will help us to be transformed in our daily lives. So let's first look at the beginning of the 90th Psalm to give some background to verse 12. This is a psalm of Moses, who lived to the ripe old age of 120 years, still bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, even though in verse 10 he says that 70 years are given to us, and some even live to 80. But, he adds, even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear and we fly away. Okay, in the Amplified Version. Okay. Lord, you have been our dwelling place our refuge, our sanctuary, our stability in all generations. Before the mountains were born or before you had given birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are the eternal God. You turn man back to dust and say, return to the earth, O children of mortal men. 
for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You have swept men away like a flood. They fall asleep, forgotten as soon as they are gone. In the morning, they are like grass, which grows anew. In the morning, it flourishes and springs up. In the evening, it wilts and withers away. It's very sobering, isn't it? And those of you who are young, and if you're under 50 or even 60, you're still young. You probably don't think about how brief your life is and how unpredictable the day of your death is. Um, the older you get, the more you realize that each day is a gift for you and that you really can't count on having more than today. Remember last, last Sunday, um, we, we sang several songs that dealt with our mortality and I just, um, I often think that the worship songs, we almost don't need a sermon because so much, so much of the message this morning was appropriate. But we sang, on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near, and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years and then forevermore. And I really look forward to that. And I, I hope you'll sing that at my funeral. Um, last week we also sang In Christ Alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. So when you become aware of how little time each of us has on earth, suddenly your perspective on life shifts and you start to have an eternal perspective. So let's begin by looking at this verse. First, the verse asks God to teach us something, to consider our mortality so that we can grow in wisdom. So my first question is, how does God teach us? Um, so I came up with a few ideas. First, by his word. Um, you may have heard Linda speaking a couple of weeks ago in her sermon, saying that reading God's word is the key to hearing from God and becoming more like Jesus. I treasure the time first thing in the morning when I can do various studies, um, whether it's version or, or whatever, but it challenges me to walk closer to Jesus. I know this is harder to do when you're a young parent dealing with poopy diapers and getting kids off to school or teaching them at home, or you spend long hours at your workplace or your schoolwork eats up every available minute of your day. So it's a luxury for me to have that time to wait quietly for the Lord. But I hope even in your busy schedules, you can find a time that works for you. God also teaches us by speaking to us, if we're listening. That's the crunch. And when I look back on the times that I've heard clearly from the Lord, I realize mostly they happened when I was in a crisis situation, when life was throwing unexpected curveballs at me. 37 years ago, I was expecting baby number five, and my monthly urine test at the doctor's showed high blood sugar, so I was thrown into the hospital and put on insulin. The changes in my life were dramatic. I had to eat specific amounts of food at specific times, and blood sugar testing in those days was really primitive. And on a Sunday, about a month after I came out of the hospital, um, I was sitting at the back of church eating my lunch, because it was 12 o'clock and the sermon was still happening and 
Um, I wasn't questioning God or railing against my fate or anything dramatic like that, but I was bewildered at all these sudden changes in, my, in this pregnancy. Then I heard as clearly as if one of you spoke to me, um, God's voice saying, I love you, my child. It still gives me goosebumps. I can't begin to say how much that meant to me and still means to me because I realized that God was with me on the journey and his love would sustain me, whatever happened. Um, similarly, in the 90s, I was in bed for over a year with what was diagnosed as chronic fatigue syndrome, or as son Daniel uh, said, he called it chronic flu syndrome because I had a low-grade fever for month after month. This time, I learned that God loved me even if I couldn't do anything for him or for anyone else. I'd always been a doer, right, a Martha type. And what I did formed my identity. But God showed me very clearly that he loved me just the way I was. You can see I'm a slow learner. I'm sure none of you are as hard of hearing God as I have been. The third time, I'll tell you what happened this past week. I knew the verse that the Lord wanted me to share, but I had no idea how to make it real. I had two doctor's appointments at the Riverside uh, Hospital on Tuesday, and I knew there would be long waits, so I'd saved the latest Alan Bradley novel to read. Bradley's a Canadian author, and he's written a series about um, Flavia de Luce. She's a 12-year-old girl um, living in England in the 1950s, and she's fascinated with chemistry and with death. So, in each book, Flavia inevitably finds a dead body and she solves the mystery of another murder. And as she says, to me, an unexamined corpse was a tale untold, a knotted ball of a tale that was simply crying out to be unraveled until the last strand had been picked free. The fact that it was also a study in progressively putrid chemistry simply made it all that much more lively and interesting. <laughs> Doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? I should have been reading my Bible, right? But here I was, escaping into the story, and the Lord spoke to me all the way through. I should mention Bradley's writing is hilarious. I was continually breaking out laughing in the hospital waiting room, which is a little bit embarrassing. Anyway, the title of book nine um, that I was finally getting to read, The Graves, a Fine and Private Place. So you might suspect the Lord was going to speak to me even in a novel. So I will read a few parts to you to you and ask you to think about whether is there a message in this. Chapter one, Flavia is speaking. I gazed across the water at the rich and comforting shades of the churchyard. Most people probably never stop to think about why our burial places are so green, but if they ever did, their faces might turn the very shade of that graveyard grass, for underneath the picturesque moss and lichen and beneath all those weathered stones, is a slowly simmering chemical stew, bubbling and burbling away in the dark earth as our ancestors and neighbors, with the help of a little chemistry, are returned to their neighbor, or to their maker, sorry. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return, the Bible tells us. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, says the Book of Common Prayer. But both of these books, having been written mostly in good taste, fail to mention either the stinking jelly or the oozing liquids and the gaseous faces through which each of us must pass on our way to the great beyond. The average churchyard is a first-rate meat tenderizer. 
shocking perhaps, but true. Just as an aside, I would ask you to keep that picture in your mind as you con contemplate your body's eventual future. Okay, chapter three, Flavia's looking through a copy of Hymns Ancient and Modern. I thumb my way to hymn 289, and she quotes the hymn, days and moments quickly flying, blend the living with the dead. Soon will you and I be lying, each within his narrow bed. How I adore hymns, says Flavia. Okay, and then chapter four. Um, and this, you have, this is very English. I don't know that this happened in Canada, but if you think back to Oliver Twists, it's very similar to what Oliver experiences. Um, she unexpectedly visits an undertaker's mortuary, and she tells the reader, it was clearly a place where funerals had been marshaled before their procession to the graveyard. I could imagine the black horses standing patiently as they were harnessed for the hearse, which would have been a shellacked and solemn thing on slender wooden wheels, with unnerving slabs of glass all the way around, so that those fortunate enough to be still alive could have a jolly good gawk at the coffin as they envisaged its grisly contents. There would have been cockades attached or black-dyed ostrich feathers designed to ruffle in the breeze like the feathers of dead birds to generate a primitive shudder in the spectators and remind them of their own mortality. There would have been mutes in tall black hats to pace numbly along the hearse and catch the eye of anyone they could as if to say, you, you there, yes, you, you who might be next. And then Flavia thinks, oh, for the good old days when death was an everyday equal and not to be padlocked away like some dim-witted relative whom nobody wanted to see or spend time with. So have you ever noticed how reluctant people are to talk about death? It's a, quite a good observation. So I'm only partway through the book, so I will just leave you with what the undertaker's son says to Flavia, quote, quoting his father, the undertaker. Da says that life is full of death, and that it's better to make friends with it than to fight it. So my first question was, how, did, how does God teach us? And you can see he uses many different ways, even a novel. My second question is in two parts. Why should we consider our mortality, the fact that we're going to die? And of course, the answer is in the verse itself, duh. Um, that considering our mortality, the fact that we can pop off at any moment, leads us to grow in wisdom and to live wisely. But how does this happen? How do we grow in wisdom and live wisely? It could be a whole series of sermons, but I'm going to focus on the hope of what happens after we fly away and how that affects how we live. It's important to remember that life on earth is just a temporary assignment. Knowing this truth should radically alter your values and fix your attention on the things that are eternally important. As C.S. Lewis observed, all that is not eternal is eternally useless. It's a fatal mistake to assume that God's goal for your life is material prosperity or popular success as the world defines it. The abundant life has nothing to do with material abundance. Faithfulness to God does not guarantee success in a career or even in ministry. Paul was faithful, but he ended up in prison after a life full of hardships, a long list. John the Baptist was faithful when he was beheaded. Millions of faithful people have been martyred, have lost everything, or come to the end of their lives with nothing to show for it. 
not a good endorsement of the Christian life, it's a, but the end is not the end. When life gets tough, when you're overwhelmed with doubt, or when you wonder if living for Christ is worth the effort, remember, you're not home yet. At death, you won't leave home, you'll go home. Jesus promises in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me so that you also may be where I am. And that is the hope that counteracts our natural fear of the unknown. Just the same idea with the idea of our lives leading to eternity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for we fix our attention not on things that are seen, but on things that are unseen. What can be seen lasts only for a time, but what cannot be seen lasts forever. So think of the choices you make every day, some little, some big. How do they reflect an eternal perspective? For example, when I'm shopping, do I really need a new pair of jeans? Or would spending that money on, say, sponsoring a compassion child um, be better, have, have more eternal consequences? Um, would, if, instead of spending an hour on Facebook, for example, or browsing my computer, would it be better to volunteer at the food bank, help out there? It's, are, we daily face these kinds of choices. Jesus says in Matthew 6 that wherever our treasure is, our heart will also be there. If what's most important to you are the things of the earth, and I keep, these, this message is for me as much as anybody here. I, I need to hear this and I need to really, really absorb it. If, if the things of earth are more important, then every day I'm moving farther and farther away from my treasure. Because every day you're here on earth, you've got one fewer day here on earth. But if you're investing in God's kingdom and using your time and money to serve God's purposes, then you're storing up treasures in heaven every day. You're getting closer and closer to your treasure instead of farther and farther away. Um, missionary Jim Elliott, who, who died in Ecuador, Ecuador, one of five missionaries who were murdered, um, once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Hard as it is to grasp, life is not about things. You've got to maintain the right possession about possessions or you'll be possessed by your possessions. You've got to realize none of it's gonna last. Um, Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, for we brought nothing into this world and neither can we carry anything out of it, not even our iPhone 10. In other words, never judge your self-worth by your net worth. Never think your value is related to your valuables. Realize that the greatest things on earth are not things. Life is not about acquisition or achievement. Life is about relationships. And if you were here last week, you would have heard Vince telling us that, that life is about loving God and loving others. So the best way to remember that your life is not about things is to build your life on eternal priorities. Focus on what will last forever. So Jesus gives a sobering warning in Luke 12. 
Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and big build, build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So please think about Jesus' words before you rent a storage unit for your excess possessions. You've got a choice to make. The world is telling you that you've got to get more to be happier, more successful, more important, more valuable, and more secure. But you've got to decide whether you're going to listen to culture or to Christ. Are you going to listen to the world or to the word? One will make you dissatisfied the rest of your life. One will make you truly happy. You may have a lot to live on, but do you have anything to live for? Do you have a relationship with God? Is he Lord of your life? Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Notice, he doesn't say you shouldn't serve God and money. He says you can't. It's impossible. Nobody can serve two masters. So you're going to have to decide which will be number one in your life, God or the material possessions, your money. So the secret of contentment in fi is finding your security and your satisfaction in what you, not in what you have, but in whose you are. You can find them both in Christ. Um, I've just been doing a study on Brother Lawrence practicing the presence of God. And it's, it's just a short little book, but it's well worthwhile reading. Um, Brother Lawrence shows that by spending our days in communion with God, offering up to him everything we do, everything we say, that we receive the gift of the kingdom of heaven here on earth, and we get a foretaste of what it's going to be like to spend eternity with our Lord and Savior. So there's a balance here. We're not to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, right? Um, that's what Joel's grandfather used to teach, right? Um, we are called to be responsible stewards, managers of what God gives us, always remembering that we're just pilgrims passing through life on earth. So David in Psalm 17 says, But as for me, my contentment is not in wealth, but in seeing you, God, and knowing all is well between us. And when I awake in heaven, I will be fully satisfied, for I will see you face to face. And surely this is why God calls us to number our days. Okay. When a message comes at me daily, I finally take it seriously, and I beg you to do the same. Death is not something to be feared or denied. Rather, we need to embrace it, or as Flavia says, make friends with it. Our lives are just a fleeting moment, 
we have a choice whether to make those fleeting moments count for eternity, but in the meantime, we're called to be faithful stewards wherever we are. So I pray that when each of us meets our creator at the end of our time on earth, that he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I look forward to meeting you all in eternity. <laughs> so we're going to conclude with the end of Psalm 90 as a prayer for all of us. Um, so why don't we stand and say this all together. Oh, satisfy us with your loving kindness in the morning, now, before we grow older, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let your work, the signs of your power, be revealed to your servants and your glorious majesty to their children. And let the gracious favor of the Lord our God be on us. Confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Lord, I just pray a blessing on each one here. I pray that each one will be drawing closer and closer to you, Lord, as you draw them close to yourself. Lord, I just pray that this, this message will touch each person here. Blessings on you all. In Jesus' name, amen. So if anyone would like prayer, there's lots of people around that would be happy to pray with you, um, especially the ones that have the signs on them. And uh, yes, so have a really good week. Well, give me your...